Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life. Today I catch up with a phenomenal editor of the critically acclaimed Good Weekend magazine, Katrina Strickland. Tune in as we chat about her journey from studying law to becoming the editor of one of Australia's most loved weekly magazines, The Good Weekend, and how the world of publishing has drastically changed over the past decade, and how a 35-hour-plus train journey from Melbourne to Port Douglas as an inspiring journalist changed her life forever. Hey, Katrina, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? Hi, Vince. Good. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. And it's so nice to have you here in our studio in Alexandria. You've been to our other studios in Redfern and probably the one in Surrey Hills as well prior to that. Um, it's really cool because we were neighbors way back. Uh, we about were. 15 years ago in Mill Hill Road in Bondi Junction. Yep. And you lit- we were literally living right next to each other. Yeah. And, uh, that was a, a really interesting t- time for me because I just had got um, separated from my wife. And um, going to a whole new neighborhood that was full of families and quite a lovely little vibe. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember Halloween was massive on that street, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember when we arrived, it was all these families with kids hanging on their front porches, talking to each other, having wine and cheese. It just seemed like magic. It was magic and um, it's definitely what we needed when I moved there. And the kids came and stayed the weekend, and there's a whole bunch of other kids to play with. It was so lo- lovely, yeah. and quite rare, I think, mm. in today's world where there's a little community there. And I'm not even sure that it would be the same right now. Like I think that was a moment in time where there was about five families at that down down that bottom end of the yeah. street that all had kids about the same age. I bet it's not. Yeah, they I remember the same they're now. running in and out of each other's houses, yeah. and I hadn't had a drink for five years, and. Foolishly, I listened to one of the neighbors as soon as I got there saying to me, Michelle said to me, just have one. Oh. <laughs> and, that, and that got me onto the, uh, onto the kind of the drinking every night situation, as they all did too, which um, took me a few years to get over that. It's kind of really cool when you, when you meet people um, through life and, and also when you have, meet people that you have a kind of, I guess, a, a career kind of connection as well, as well as being nice people, but also about... Um, you know, people that are kind of like yourself who do incredible work in publishing and, and writing. Obviously, you're the editor of The Good Weekend, which we'll touch on in a second. We'll go into more depth around that. But let's just talk about you as a human being mm-hmm. and how you started off in this world. Okay. Well, I grew up in Melbourne. I mean, how far back do we yeah. want to go? Well, it can't go before that. So, like, <laughs> not before you're born. Let's just talk about... Born in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, Older brother, younger sister, raised in a kind of typical kind of middle class Melbourne kind of, you know, we loved the footy, we went to the footy, we, you know, went to school, played with our friends, nothing particularly unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and I always loved writing and I guess putting on plays and those kind of creative things. And we, yeah, when I finished school, I 
got into law at Melbourne Uni and did arts law and I loved the course and then I went to do articles which is like your first year of um, work I guess, it's the training year, absolutely hated it, (laughs) couldn't think of anything worse than trudging off to that place every day and realised pretty quickly that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved the study of the law but I didn't really like the divide your life into five minute billable units yeah. life that was rolled a- rolling out in front of me yeah. so I um I'd always wanted to be a journalist and so I thought okay I'm gonna quit this job and I'd spent the summer up in Port Douglas staying with a girlfriend who'd moved up there and waitressing and that kind of thing and I had I mean now it seems such a harebrained idea but I thought okay I'm gonna quit when I, like the moment I get admitted to um, the bar, which is what you need to then practice as a lawyer, mm-hmm. I'm going to catch the train from Melbourne to Cairns. I'm going to work up there as a waitress and then I'm going to come back to Melbourne and apply for a cadetship at the age at the, they you know, they put them out every year. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I remember my parents freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a very good idea and trying to convince me that, you know... Journalists were alcoholic no-hopers and that that was a really bad idea. And how right they were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> I now know why they were concerned. <laughs> um, so I did that. I caught the train up there and then I went for a cadetship at the Cairns Post and I got it. And the guy, in fact, lovely editor, just was looking at my CV going, you're really overqualified for this. Why don't you try and go for a cadetship, you know, in a capital city. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, I want to stay up here because I did love it up there. I loved the vibe and, uh, you know, it wasn't that developed at that point. Mm-hmm. This was in the early 90s. And um, and then if, if my brother's girlfriend at the time happened to be working at the Herald Sun mm. and they needed – she was in the business section and they needed a, a cadet, really someone they could pay not very well to come yeah. <laughs> and be a dog's body. And so I did one day at the Cairns Post and then um, realised that I maybe the editor had been right in the first place. So oh, my I, God, just yeah, one day. One day. And this and so I'd already had a phone interview with the business editor of the Herald Sun and I'd said, no, no, I'm going to stay up here and take the Cairns Post thing. So, I mean, my decision-making at that time <laughs> was appalling, really. And he was like, oh, okay, that's a bit weird. And the editor of the Cairns Post was like, okay, that's a bit weird. And then after a day <laughs> I went, oh, that was a really, really dumb decision. So I rang, I think at lunchtime I went out and rang the editor, business editor of the Herald Sun and said, if you haven't appointed anyone else, you know, I'm still interested. Me thinking that they would have appointed someone else. Now I know in journalism they would have probably just... You know, no one gets that organised to have <laughs> appointed someone else within a day or two. Yeah. Um, so, there, yeah, I came back to um, Melbourne and, and joined the Herald Sun as a cadet in the business section. Yeah, wow. How long did you do that for? I did that. I was there for a couple of years and then I really loved the idea of living somewhere else other than Melbourne. So mm-hmm. then I got a job at the Australian in Sydney in the business section as I've been doing the marketing round and the small business round on the Herald Sun so I went and got a job a job came up at the Australian um, as a marketing and media writer so I went and joined and did that for a few years oh, cool. and then what happened after that and then after that I decided because business really was my way into journalism but it wasn't my love it mm-hmm. wasn't really what I was it was a great training I would never say shouldn't do that yeah. but 
I then a job came up in the arts section of the Australian, and I thought, oh, I would love to be an arts reporter. So, yeah. So you I'm, you I'm were the art editor at the AFR. Well, before that, I was an arts writer at the Australian, and I did a few different jobs in that. Like I was deputy arts editor. I moved back to Melbourne. Then I was arts editor in Sydney around the time of the Olympics, and then um, I went back to Melbourne again as a arts writer and then I and I went back and forth overseas a few times in amongst this and then yeah then the financial review needed an arts editor and I joined them in I think 2006. So you studied arts law and what what is it about arts like where did that come from was that something that's always been something you've been interested in you brought up that way in your family? I mean not really it's interesting because when I look back my dad um he loved graphic design and, and drawing and he all, and he ended up just working in, in banking. He went from school into being a teller in Violet Town <laughs> in regional Victoria and then ended up, you know, kind of working his way in through banking. But he always loved drawing and mm. I remember saying to me once that he, you know, if he'd had his time again, he might have gone and been a graphic artist. Oh, or wow. a, um, So I think there was that kind of line in my family but it certainly wasn't overt like it wasn't that obvious mum and dad always liked like they liked buying um work from you know the artist who lived around the corner that kind of thing but um but no there was no obvious interest I always loved English I think and um so that drew me to journalism was the writing and kind of books aspect of it but yeah no not not really. I mean, I wasn't very good at art at school, I've got to say. <laughs> I don't think anyone would have picked that I was But that. you're very good at obviously writing about it or editing it or Well, I just, I mean, it's, it. I think in journalism it's like any area that you get into, you can, you kind of get to learn more and more about it and you become more and more interested in it. So I think it was latent there, it wasn't overt. Yeah. But, but I think the more I wrote about it and the more interested I was in it um you know and and when I was at the AFR the the job was the business of the arts so it was buying and selling of paintings you know covering the auction art auction area it was the you know the politics and the business of running arts companies so it was not so much I mean we did lots of interviews with artists per se but it was also about the creative industries, I guess, more yeah. broadly, and yeah. the the business side, which suited me very well because I liked, I liked reporting and finding things out and putting things together and picking trends and that you know. And I guess when I think back, writing about marketing, that that was kind of creative. It was ad industries. It was you know, campaigns and that kind of thing. So, the business of the arts, you know, you can kind of see the link. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've never written about us, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I have been. I'm not sure. Oh, yes, well, we'll come Conf- to that. Conflict Actually, of have. interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, let's also just talk about uh, The Good Weekend, and you've been the editor since 2017. Yeah. Um, that's a really, really cool publication, a weekly, obviously. Every yep. week has a weekend. Um, how did you get into that role? Yeah, so when I was at the AFR, after being 
arts editor for a while. I moved into being the deputy editor at the magazine. Mm -hmm. And then the editor that I was working for, um, Jenny Porter, she moved overseas within a year. So within a year of me having joined the magazine, I was editor of the AFR magazine, which is a monthly. And I loved that. That was a great kind of training ground for being a magazine editor. But I just always loved Good Weekend. I'd grown up with it. I kind of loved that any aspect of life you could, you know, basically write a story on. Whatever you found interesting, whatever you thought most people would find interesting, whether it's the people that are noticeable or the issues that you think are really relevant. I just loved the breadth of it and kind of the messiness of it. Like, you know, AFR was very much... You know, money and and beautiful things, and uh, I kind of like, you know, the fact that Good Weekend deals a lot in more society, and and it's not all beautiful, and it's not all. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when the Good Weekend editor again, a bit like the AFR mag editor, she um, moved overseas. There's a trend here. <laughs> I take jobs when people move yeah. overseas, and they jumped they, into her seat. Yeah, <laughs> they advertised it, and I thought actually that's the magazine that I've always wanted to edit. So, yeah, I applied for it and got it. Let's talk about that. that what you talked about before, the AFR magazine being a monthly, and it was a glossy publication. It is a yeah. glossy publication. So, And then you moved to a newsprint publication, which was weekly. Yeah. Some people would think that's hell. Because uh, I, I remember back in the day, back in London, I worked on the Independent Saturday magazine. I redesigned that, and it was a weekly, and that was the pressure of that. It was newsprint, too. Yeah. By the time it was printed, it you already seen it on the in the streets and the bins and things like that, and cafes covered in coffee stains and stuff like that. It was quite the, at odds with kind of previous publications I designed that were either quarterlies or monthly publications that had a lot more time and refinement around. Mm. Whereas going from a monthly to a, a weekly, you, you talk very fondly about that. Was most people would just go, you know, that is. It's hard, isn't oh, it? Oh, it, it was insane. That adjustment must have been hard, It too. was so hard. And I think I didn't, you know, you don't know what you're doing, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, That's I reassuring. Mean, yeah, I, I thought, you know, I loved the content of Good Weekend, but I also loved that it, it just was, su- it's had such history and such a breadth of readership. Yeah. You know, like I think it's the the most well, most read magazine in the country still, or one of. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, going from a monthly to a weekly, I, I would say it took about six to 12 months to get used to the rhythm of a weekly where you just don't have, like, the pipeline of stories that you have to have going and yeah. the fact that not everything comes off in the time in which you need it, not everything comes off as well as you need it, so you'll need to work on it. Yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, I, I clearly didn't know <laughs> I mean, a, a monthly has its own stresses and rhythms, yeah. and we had, you know, inserted watch magazines within the magazine, so yeah. that um, was hard. But, um, but yeah, a weekly is brutal. Um, but okay. you do get used to it. I think any rhythm, any job, you get used to the rhythm, don't you? Yeah. I remember going from that weekly to the redesign the newspaper, and that, clearly, oh, yeah. that was daily. daily. And that was scary as hell. There was just an absolute, the pressure and the pace was phenomenal. I guess that we go from a monthly, which is more kind of, I guess, trend and more kind of glossy to a weekly, which is more fresher information because it's, it's not a daily, but it's, it's, it's absolutely of that week. Um, Did you find kind of working with that subject matter that it's kind of, it isn't historical 
um, pieces, but it is much more um, driven by what's current in the news or in the world. Yeah, and I, that was one of the things that I absolutely loved about it. I mean, on a monthly, in a way, you go, oh, you've only got 12 covers. You know, 12 covers a year yeah. is all you've got, whereas, you know, we have a few weeks off over summer, but you've got like 48, 47, 48 covers. So I love that there's so many subjects that you can get on the cover. Yeah. And, in fact, Amelia Lester, who I took over from, she said, which I thought was such a great comment, like, you know, that that is really great because you can really respond to what's happening. Yeah. But also, if, if you have a you have a dart or you have a week that's not so good doesn't matter because another one's coming along the next week <laughs> yeah. you know it is that whole fish and chip wrapper thing that yeah, yeah. You, you you move on so quickly from the best things and the worst things and you know disasters and triumphs uh, you know within seven days no one's you know it's gone <laughs> yeah although that's slightly different today i must say with online because yeah. a lot of people find you know if they're particularly interested in a story now they'll find it and write to you you know weeks later but yeah. in general it's because we're we're print and online yeah, now so um it, well, that changes it slightly let's talk about that too because obviously we're in the world of everything's digital everything's live and everything's instant um has there been a decline that people talked about, uh, you know, a decline of print or decline of people reading publications like yours? No, I mean, I feel like it's interesting that, um, I don't know what you feel, but I feel like there's a slight trend back towards yeah. print because we're all so sick of our phones and we're so, um, you know, it comes at us all the time. Yeah, I think like one of our um, top digital editors said to me recently, because I, I take the magazine up and give it to the other editors days before it comes out and he said I love taking that print magazine that you've given to me on a Saturday I go to the gym then I go to the cafe with it and I read it and I feel like there is a bit of a realization that you can block everything else out with a book or a magazine and you can just focus on that and that that's kind of a new luxury in a yeah, way yeah um, but also with the online our we work very closely with the online editors of the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age which is papers that we're inserted into and the Brisbane Times and WA Today which are both online products and so our stories appear on the home pages and we roll them out you know really from Thursday through to Sunday of that weekend mm. so it's quite strategic in okay what's going to get the best audience on this day you know yeah. two of us will often release on a Thursday because it seems to do well you know perhaps at people's lunch breaks at work yeah um, things like Modern Guru, which is a humour column, might come out on a Friday. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's we're really doing dual things these days. We're doing the online rollout yep. and the traffic, and you know, the metrics on how things go. But then there's also the the print product. And how how was the shift from being a writer in a publication to being the editor? Because that's it's ultimately your responsibility now yeah. for curating the content, yeah. deciding what story's in, what's not in, or how you express that story. Yeah, I mean, that was another challenge, I guess, because when you're writing, there is a... It's like anything creative, I guess. There's a glorious point at which, you know, there's always a point at which you think, I can't do this, why am I doing this? This is terrible. <laughs> and then you come out the other... You know, you're threading the elephant through the eye of the needle, and then you come <laughs> out the other side... 
you know, at last. And then you just get this wonderful feeling of, I've, you know, I've now nailed that 5,000 word piece and then it's about finessing it. Whereas editing, you don't get that, but you get other thrills. You know, I do love the breadth of people that I'm dealing with. I'm talking with photographers and designers and writers and um, and marketing and, and our commercial people who sell the ads in the magazine. So the, I love the the breadth, but it's it's a lot of little things all the time. So you've kind of got to be someone who's good at juggling ten balls and not letting yeah. any of them fall and not just – you can't really be monofocused. You have to be very broad at, yeah. at keeping them all in the air and, and then – Making that they making sure they land in the right spot, so it's a quite a different skill, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, and I think in a, at a time when, as you mentioned before, our, our phones give us so much information, live information, true and false, and mm. everything in between, all the time, is that obviously algorithms are curating it for us, but it's really hard. I I often find I kind of overwhelmed by the fact that the content I'm consuming in this way, in this manner, is not curated. That That's what I love about books and mm. magazines is that it is, there's an element of control or there's a viewpoint across it that these articles are in this publication for a reason. They deserve to be there in the order that they're in for the journey of, you know, interaction with that as opposed to me trying to decipher what's good and bad. Yeah. You know, you're doing, you're the expert at that. So I think that, I find it's quite, I don't imagine kind of a younger generation now who haven't been exposed, haven't grown up with newspapers mm. um, go, or have been on their phones since they're ch- little children. Th- they have a very different way of consuming content. Mm, I completely agree. I mean, I love it when it's it's a classic of brand trust, isn't it? If you yeah. trust the brand, whether it's the n- magazine brand or the um, newspaper brand, finding things for you but I guess the equivalent is if you follow certain people on Instagram that's that's the equivalent for young you know people who are not growing up with the brands that we're talking about they they know that if that person puts it in front of them you know it might be their kind of thing but but there's a lot more of that I do think it's it's hard to it's it's hard for anyone to work out what's good and what's not you know even if you're just looking for say a new kettle or something you know you do want someone who you trust to say this is the brand that's yeah. quality yeah know? exactly um let's just go back i was going to ask you this initially was what is a good weekend for you oh for me yeah well my weekend do we start saturday or friday <laughs> i don't know i don't know okay when do you start your uh, weekend? well i think friday friday night get home from work <laughs> get on the couch we've got two cats yeah my husband and my two cats um have a nice drink cook something nice for dinner, watch something on telly. (laughs) Um, Saturday I go swimming with some friends and we'll often go to Bondi, um, you know, out the back or Mm -hmm. we'll go to Manly, from Manly to Shelley Beach or we'll go to a pool and then we'll go out for breakfast and that's like my, that's my Saturday. I really don't let anything interrupt that. That's kind of sacrosanct and we've been doing it, there's a couple of us who've been doing it for, oh God, ever since I moved back to Sydney in 2006. Um, And then other people kind of come and go, but it's fantastic because you get your exercise in and then you go for breakfast and you solve the problems of the world and then you go home and you've kind of got 
you know, you get home about lunchtime Saturday and you've got the rest of the weekend to, you know, I love sitting on the couch reading the papers on a Saturday afternoon. That yeah. sounds so um, workish, but I do actually love reading all the Saturday papers. Um, Saturday night, maybe we'll go out or I also like Saturday night at home because I do go out quite a lot for work on yeah, sure. weekdays. And then Sunday, you know, often I will like reading a book. Yeah. I find with so much of my work, you need to be across everything yeah. in the news and in other magazines. It's really nice on a Sunday, I find, to just curl up on the couch with a book. Wow, that sounds Yeah, I'm really sounding boring, aren't I? <laughs> no, that sounds really idyllic. Um, so that's your good weekend. How do, you, how do you cater for the population's good weekend? Yeah. Or how do, how do you work out? how to appeal to the broader how many how many readers what's the readership like yeah readership's about um eight hundred thousand at the moment i think but that's just the print readership and then online should be million online yeah our stories well it's it's judged online by individual stories but um our stories do rate very highly on subscriber conversion which is one of the big things that we're into at the moment you know where the people who want to read that story but aren't subscribing will go through and become a subscriber. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So we have food, we have recipes, we have restaurant reviews, we have humour. You don't want it to be, I remember at one point, um, and I don't know whose time this was, but someone said to me, oh, I'd like the magazine to slit your whisper <laughs> because it's also dour and kind really? of, um, I don't know whether that was fair at the time or not, but I, it's always stayed in my mind that, you do need to give people a mix and we we work really hard to make sure that the mix is right so that it's not all tragedy and you know because tragedy is compelling and we learn things from it and we want to read about people's terrible times or you know triumph through adversity or just some of the issues in the world that are really troubling and trying to work our way through them but you also need you also need some light. So light and shade, yep. making sure that in every issue there's some light and shade is really important. I guess the publication is, when, when I experienced working on The Independent, previous to that I'd done a big magazine which was like came out whenever we wanted to. <laughs> and it was like I was doing it in my on my kitchen table. It was a kitchen mm. type of table publication that, you know, it was just me putting it together. Um, walking into a, a newspaper, a publisher and and and, and for the first time meeting a photo editor mm. <laughs> or an editor or subs and all that is like real eye-opener and um, exciting to kind of know that that was a profession it still is a profession but probably a lot less people involved in publications today what's it what's it like working with a team because the team is obviously vital to be getting this incredible publication out every every yeah week. it's um I, mean, I just feel like we I'm so lucky because our team is I know everyone would probably say this but they are absolutely awesome and I often say it's like it's like a train that stops in every station and you cannot stop the train the train is going to that end point every week and you know the photo editor has to have their bit done for their station the designers their bits the subs I have to have done and my editors you know and writers have to have done our bits and so it's it's kind of quite incredible to see each little bit jumping in and doing their bit within a deadline that is immovable. I often say that to people, you know, if 
this deadline will not move. No. Like, it doesn't matter who dies, this deadline you is coming. You can't postpone on. it. <laughs> yeah, you can't. And so every – and there's a million different things that are – not a million, but, you know, every single week there's all these things that have to hit their deadlines. Yeah. It, it's quite incredible, actually, when you step back and, and look at how many moving parts there are, which is why it is so insane when people – you know, externally want to move this or move that. And it's like, no, it's <laughs> – I do. I had this conversation with someone recently who um, we've been working on this story for ages and then the publication date of what, what they're doing was moving and it's like, we can't move that. We don't have another piece to go in that hole at this short notice and they really couldn't understand it. And I was like, well, we've got 10 different, you know, or 20 different – pieces yeah. of a puzzle that go into that magazine and once they're locked in yes okay sometimes you can move them around and drop something and push something in but it, it's not that easy no i I'm, <laughs> i remember they used to drive me nuts where you'd have the thing done the whole mm. publication done it gone to it been sent to whoever's printing it and then for whatever reason in the next few days some major disaster mm. happened or something highly topical that had to come in mm. you know the editor would go you know what we've got to change the cover you know, we got to we're going to change yeah. the lead story it's like you go, oh my god no because that is enormous you can see how important that is mm. to for in terms of readership and relevance but you can see what a major amount of work that is to shift that oh, yeah. do you just do you just put your foot down and say like no we're not changing anything no or no do you ever we, do that? we have done that and in fact that's always in magazines, you know, in anything print, I guess, there's that, we call it kind of like the black window between when you go to print and when you come out. And in Good Weekend, it's a week. And in the AFR magazine, it was two weeks. And things can happen in that week that you have no control no. over. We had, I remember doing the power issue at the AFR magazine and between us sending it to print and I think the mon- on the Friday and then on the Monday... Um, Malcolm Turnbull rolled Tony Abbott as Prime Minister. Mm. So we had already printed, I think, most of the magazine. We had to go and do a new cover, do a new kind of insert. We couldn't go and redo the whole magazine because it had been done with a panel of people who'd all agreed on who was the most powerful in the country that yeah. you know year. Um, so that there's always that fear. I know we also had a, a cover story on um, George Columbaris, the chef, and oh, yeah. between us sending oh, it to yeah. print and it coming out, all the stories on wage theft came out um, right. to do with, um, you know, him and other chefs. Yep. And so then we got – and the story was fine. It was really a very important story about suicide and mental health in kitchens. Yep. And he'd been doing yoga and things, so we'd put the headline around his head yeah, like – um, Halo. Well, we well, didn't. It wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't the a halo. halo. We we did it kind of to do the yogi thing, and it was out of you know there was no wage theft context. But then by the time it came out, we got absolutely slammed on social media for giving George Columbaris a halo, and you know, a it wasn't his choice, so he got slammed as well unfairly. Yeah. It, he didn't give himself a halo. We weren't intending it to be a halo. We were using it to to kind of symbolise someone who was doing yoga. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, wow. you do get used to having to roll with those kind of um, dramas, I guess. Yeah. 
I mean, I was going to ask you, how do you know when you got it right? How do you know when you get it wrong? Like, is a situation, have you ever been, like, wrapped over the knuckles getting something incredibly wrong? Or Yeah, I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, some people would, we're careful about putting a headline around a head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no more halos. Exactly. Or anything that looks like a halo. Exactly, and we had, um, we had a story on Ben Quilty where the photographer put a, a thing around his head that, was a barbed wire thing and again we got um slammed for trying to make him look like jesus which again we weren't trying to do but so you i think social media does really um highlight the fact that you will people will once they get ahead of steam up on something particularly if trolls get involved there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to no. ride it out for the weekend. Stay away from the head. Don't put anything exactly. on the head. Exactly. <laughs> and we've had a few things with um, animals too. We had a really important, fantastic piece on the whole dark emu, Bruce Pascoe dramas. And um, the photo that we used of an emu was marked in the photo library that we got it from as an emu but in fact it was an ostrich we got on media watch for that <laughs> and um poor barry at least gave us credit for owning up to the fact that <laughs> it wasn't um yeah well, at least it wasn't I, I shouldn't wallaby. be telling everyone all these bad things no no it's done, good it's, it's, you're only human it's life That's yeah right. exactly um, and you can't and it, with a with an audience as broad as ours you are all, every week you know, someone's going to be happy or unhappy about something. And yeah. you do, I must admit, when I came from the AFR and I'd been at the Australian before that, you, I, I was, you know, you get feedback but not to the extent that you do a good weekend. And yeah. I think that shows the ownership that people feel over the yeah. title as well. They, they feel like if you do something they don't like, they're really pissed off and they want you to know. And if you do something that they really like they also want you to know so you, yep. you do toughen up at rolling with all the you know everything that comes your way basically which is bouquets and brick bats I, th- I think what i think is good though is that it's true journalism still versus a lot of publications today just take the press release and and you know word for word kind of print it um something came to mind I mentioned ben quilty uh, andrew quilty um has just done a, a wonderful book spent a few months working with him designing it mm. um you featured a double page spread in the publication last weekend which is really really cool to see mm. and it's it's kind of made me kind of wanting to kind of talk about the other thing around your publication and publications in general is around the commissioning photography illustration and writing etc you're constantly commissioning other people to contribute to the publication yeah that's right it's interesting when i, I was looking at the afr magazine uh, they posted something the other day where they were really kind of proud, proudly kind of communicating that they had used AI mm. to create all these images of these famous people in different situations. And I was kind of felt quite sad by that because I think they were excited by that mm. and maybe have created interesting imagery. But the fact that all those photographers and writers and illustrators and creative people have been part of that publication for such a long time, to start using AI, I just felt like it was like, but actually, that was super clever, I think. So that was um, – and it's interesting that you you probably don't see the whole context when you see that. Yeah, just please help me out here I with can this. T- yeah, cause please it, justify it. It, it, it wasn't my magazine, but I actually <laughs> thought it was a really brilliant idea. Okay, Basically, cool. it was their power issue, yeah. and AI is one of the big issues 
yeah. in power this year. Yeah. So they did get some people photographed who are on the power list and they also did some AI versions. So I thought it was clever because it was actually showing it had photography and AI and so you could see which you could you could see yep. say with Albo on the cover you saw both. They had the the AI version and the photography. Yeah. And so you could kind of see that the photo was better and more human. But also AI is one of the big issues of the year. So it kind of made sense to do that. I don't, they're not replacing photographers with AI. It was a conceit to show the importance of AI. Let's see next month. This year, yeah. Because obviously <laughs> it's a hell of a lot cheaper than commissioning and, and publications are an enormous pressure financially. Yeah, but if you had a look at them, they're, they're not, I mean, they're not great, those AI images. <gasps> Okay. They're not. In that publication or just generally? Oh, generally. They're well, not human. They're not real. Well, you know, I don't yeah. I don't feel like any magazine is going to go down that route. I could be wrong. but um, The two of us. Yep. Not, not you and me. You've been in it. I've been in it and I was like, I was so See, thrilled. we have written about it for us. Yes, yes, you have. <laughs> just, just the me. man, not the, bu- not the business. Yeah, yeah, no, and it was cool. Julie Gibbs, who is um, a dear, dear friend and... Um, we're both Sagittarians, both born within two days of each other, same age and everything. Um, she published my book, Design Your Life, which was really cool when she was at Penguin Lantern. And, and um, it was, yeah, it was quite a, it was such a such a personal thing to be featured mm. in that publication. I was t- so honored to be in there. And it's it's wonderful. That's kind of a, an institution in itself, isn't it? The the weekly, the two of us. Oh, and who you bring absolutely together. absolutely love the two of us it's been going for decades and I would say it is one of the most along with the quiz it's probably the most popular part of the magazine and we are very rigorous on it I think people get surprised when they pitch two people you know in their business I mean you would know this from when we did you and Julie it was quite irritating but it's very irritating (laughs) to the subjects who just want to get a free plug because we you know we really make sure that everyone knows this is all about the the private is not to plug plug whatever you want to plug. It's all about your relationship and the contours between it and the ups and downs. And you have to be very candid and yeah. you know, like a lot of people don't come back when we give them <laughs> the, the spiel about what it is and what it isn't because you know it. And that's why it's so loved. That and you know you talked before about real journalism versus blamange kind of puffery PR yeah. that. That is what we are still yeah, committed yeah, yeah. to, and I do agree that a lot of a lot of um, publications are, are less so, and I think that is our point of difference, and it's a point of difference for the New Yorker and the New York magazine, yeah, yeah. and you know if you're still known, and two of us is still known to be real human stories where it's a, it's not plugging something, it's about the the ups and downs of a relationship. Like, who's not interested in that? But it takes work. Yeah. Because most people initially don't necessarily want to go there. They don't want to expose the time that they, one of them had an affair or they had a big fight or they... Um, and that, well, that wasn't us. That, that wasn't yeah. you, but you know what I mean. You were like looking for some but, dirt, no But doubt. that is actually what brings the column alive because that is what life is, you know. No one's life is, is as lovely, lovely as, yeah. you know, sometimes... Well, some, something be. was kind of yeah, and, and I agree. I remember getting the um, 
yeah, getting those questions. What was the lady in, the lady I met with Nicole? Nicole, yeah. Nicole? yeah, and and oh, I was like, she was tough. <laughs> I'm like, how, how long have you known her for for Julian? And and how often do you see her? And and I was like, oh. and she'd ask me kind of like, it was almost like I was applying for a visa. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's right. It's um, uh, and I think that rigor and that that kind of determination to make every bit even even the smaller pieces proper real journalism which has a texture and a fabric and a you know a, a, it's not all just no. beautiful beautiful that that is what resonates with readers yeah. and i think in an increasingly you know lamond world that matters more yeah um it's a bit, I remember in the in the independent we did a pub, uh, a regular article called face to F- it was called face to face it was two people coming together and interviewing each mm-hmm. other or having a conversation that was really similar kind of rigor around making sure that that wasn't going to be a disaster conversation mm. that they did have genuine you know perspectives on it I remember like I used, like when that publication came out with the the, the two of us Julie and I and it, I remember people going oh I never knew that you and Julie were a couple like, oh no so something something was clearly they um, didn't read it properly didn't though. read it properly yeah, yeah. Uh, good good friends but not not a not a couple but um but don't you think that's part of social media too that people look at their they just look at it flip. but they don't they yeah. don't necessarily yeah just take chunk bite size stuff but it was it yeah. was incredible how many people do read that. And how many people just felt it was a very, um, they're very warm, uh, yeah. aren't they? These, these, um, well, that, you, you that do interview. capture, you capture the essence of the friendship or the, yeah, romance or the, you know, relationship. And yeah, I think it really did capture something about your friendship, yeah, a, a, gen, a genuine friendships. I think that's what it ca- comes across. And I think when you say how many people that, I mean, that is what I love about Good Weekend too, is that such a broad readership that people are, people are often surprised when they feature in there how many people from their school friends or you know from other aspects of their life who they haven't seen yeah. happen to see it and and comment and I love that because it, it means you can you can move the dial on a social issue if you want to write about it or you can you can really boost something um, or expose something yeah there's something incredibly exciting about that I mean I'm, I personally miss working on publications like that mm. I, I get a bit of a fix by finding pictures and kind of putting stuff on my story which is gives me a similar kind of buzz yeah. because I'm kind of editing I'm, I'm, I'm seeing something and I'm kind of putting it out there for people mm. it's a bit like fishing you kind of I guess in a way what you're doing when you're creating an article is that you're trying to appeal to somebody or you're trying to you're hoping that more you know a significant number of people find this interesting yeah. How do you know when that is right? Is it something just feel inside, or is it the team to kind of go, "This is a brilliant piece," or "This is not so good"? Or how, how do you work out yeah. that kind of the appeal side of things? It's when I started at the Herald Sun, someone gave me a book called News Sense, and it was about like how you work out what's newsworthy and what's not. Yeah, and so hard to describe but I do feel like it's one of the skills that you learn as a journalist is just kind of working out what what will appeal to people and, and what won't and it's it's that kind of cut through I think is what you kind of come down to you want it you want something that cuts through the bullshit cuts through the spin yep. and actually 
tells you or helps you also as a, as a reader understand an issue, you know. So if we've got um, a big piece on a subject, then you hope that by the end of reading that, the, the reader understands the subject more and the nuance around it, you know, and the shades of grey and they don't see it in just black and white because yeah. in, a, in a Good Weekend piece you've got four or 5,000 words, you can really actually explore yeah. a, a subject or a person, a human being, in a way that, you know, you can't do in 2,000 words and you can't do without a good writer as well. I mean, our writers are such masters of their craft and yeah. I think that's another thing that is missing in a, in a lot of um, yeah. journalism is, is the craft of yeah. long form. Not everyone can do no. it and those who can do it, they can pull a reader through four or 5,000 words and you don't even feel like it's, it's a long read because they are so good at their craft and I, I kind of do feel like that that not everyone can do that and it, it's not always recognised because they do it so seamlessly and so um, effortless. It looks effortless. It's not yeah. effortless. I mean, most of my writers, you know, by the time they finish one of those features, they're emotionally spent because it takes a lot out of them to do it and to get the nuance right and to the million different decisions they have to make on you know, do I include this? Do I not include that? Do I? How do I write about that particular thing and not get sued? How do I write about that particular thing and be fair? Yeah. You know, there's a million different decisions that they're making and, you know, that then I'm editing and then we've got, you know, the photos to go with it. So, yeah. yeah. Talking about books before, you've written a book, Affairs of the Art. You've interviewed widows controlling the state of estates of deceased artists. How did that come about? Well, that came about because I was arts editor, as you said, of the Financial Review, and I was covering the art auctions, and I noticed that all the artists who were selling for the really big prices from Australia, so Brett Whiteley, Fred Williams, John Brack, um, Howard Arkley, most of them had, had widows who were you know, in a very powerful position to determine copyright, to determine yeah. what went for sale after the artist had died. So really I was just following the story that I'd been following. I happened to be writing about the art market at a time when it was completely booming. So I really wanted to mm. look at who these women are that were controlling the estates of, of some of the most highly sought-after artworks, you know, because it's not an easy job. It's a... It's a not a poison chalice but it, you know it's, it's got its pros and cons because the husband's died but you don't ever really get to then move on to your own new life because yeah. if his work is really famous yeah, yeah, yeah. you're you're constantly in the shadow and controlling it which gives you great advantages but also you know means you're constantly living in the past in a way yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because con they're constantly looking after the portfolio or yeah. the legal side of things. And they can't get away from it, really. No. And they probably don't want to often either, but it's, yeah, I just found that psychologically fascinating and then the power of what that does because you've got all the auction houses and art dealers and everyone wants a piece of you. You know, how do you manage all of that whilst trying to also manage your own grief? and yeah. your own life and, and keep some of yourself separate. Must be hell for some of them. Well, were were yeah. they open to you hounding them as well? Yeah. <laughs> no, 
Well, oh no, another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were because a book is a bit more considered, yeah. I guess, and I got some great interviews. I mean, Howard Arkley's widow hadn't really spoken much at all and she was very open with me. Um, Bromlin Oliver, her partner at the time that she died, talked to me very, very movingly about, oh. um, you know, how she died and the circumstances leading up to it. And so, yeah, they were they were really great. It's a real, I guess it must be a real privilege for you to, to connect with people, so many people like this and have mm. real true insights to their lives. Yeah. And I then you kind of decipher what is, what you would share and not share because it must be a lot of things that you come across that are so, so personal that you wouldn't want to expose? Yeah, you do. Or are you ruthless? No, no. <laughs> I mean, I think that is that is the thing in journalism. You're always making all these judgment calls that, again, no one sees. They're kind of behind the, the sewn-together fabric of what you write. But um, I've always thought journalism is an absolute privilege. Like, I have yeah. never gotten over the wonder of going from a law firm <laughs> into a newspaper and thinking wow, I get paid to do this. You yeah. know? Like, this is just, of course, sometimes I can't bear it, but um, but most of the time I I have never lost the wonder at that I get to do this. I get to talk to people, mm. draw things out of yeah. them, and then write about it and put it into, into a publication, you know, writing about it or editing it. Yeah. It is. It's an enormous privilege. And I think you have to – I think you're wise to hold on to that because yeah. – also dealing with human beings and you've got to remember that you know you're affecting their lives by what you write as well it's interesting that because you must have a lot of optimism in your character in your life because it, it takes that doesn't it to keep turning up keep doing that keep looking relentlessly for stories and kind of you know finding some the magic yeah i think that's probably right I don't, okay, know great. You, I don't know if you need it, but it certainly, <laughs> yeah, I think I am quite optimistic. And you also just need a work ethic like you have, you know, like yep. you can't, like in any business, isn't it? you kind of got to keep going. Yeah, that's what um, Dion, a good friend of mine who's a sculptor, is that right? Sculptress, is that a word? Sculptor? Artist. Sculptor? Artist, and, and he does kettlebells, and we he, he does a whole kettlebell maniac down in Bondi that we do together. I mean, he just says, just turn up. Yeah. Just turn up. I go, okay, all right. It's easy for you to say <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Just turn up. He doesn't want to discuss it. Just turn up. And I, just true. turning up is actually what makes a difference because sometimes you just don't know what's going to happen. Exactly. Or how good it might be. Yeah. Or oh, it's that old thing of right is right. You know, like if you want to do something or, you know, what is that thing about you need 10,000 hours to be good yeah. at something, you actually have to do, do the work and that's half of it, isn't it? Yep. Let's go back to... Uh, your book, I mean, Affairs of the Art, because I think this, I, went, I went to the uh, uh, talk on Tuesday at the Opera House. Mm. Uh, UNSW put it on. It was really, really cool. And the Utsun family were there, the, the son and the daughter of Utsun. And they were talking about the history, like what it was like for them in Denmark when, you know, the dad won the competition and how their life kind of unfolded, moving to Australia and all the, the excitement of being here and the, you know, the the turn of events where they, mm. he left, the family left, went back, and then he never, you know, he had never came back again. And I thought that that was really, and I bumped, I saw your husband there too. Mm. Um, and I was just, something incredibly touching about that, 
the the way that they just talked about their lives very kind of calmly and peacefully but it kind of comes back again to that what you talk about the artists um and what they've left behind is that that has become i mean there's nothing like the opera house sydney opera mm. house is there and that that moment in time that particular project and what it means then and what it still means today and how people just continually see that as being an icon to have your whole life filled with that icon yeah some might just say it's just a building you know um and some people were highly much more critical than that in the past but that kind of um now people see it as like one of the most incredible things that ever happened and he was a genius and and you know it, it just i wonder what that feels like to 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 families when someone has done something so iconic, when really they're just doing their job, and was it completely, was it luck or was it just determination or could anybody have imagined how incredible that was? I know? mean, I think he was a genius. I think his design flair for that building, but you look at it and you go, we would never build that today. We had they had a, a talk about would we build the opera house today oh. as part of the fiftieth anniversary, yeah. and. Personally, I just no way. Like politics would get in the way, money concerns, and I also think with that family, I mean the longitudinal life is fascinating. You know, when they left, when Utzon left Australia, yeah. um, you know, basically not being paid, forced off the job. You know, he left in shame. No one in Denmark would give him other. Co- you know, he basically yeah. hardly got a commission. Yeah, yeah. Much of a commission when he went back to Denmark. So they were. You know, they were all traumatised and the kids didn't want to leave Australia. They had a good life here. They, you know, met other creative kids and that kind of thing. And then, you know, decades later, the you know, Australia starts realising what he gave us. and, And so now the whole family is revered and, you know, the story is all about how incredible it was. But for, you know, a good couple of decades few decades they were you know they were kind of persona non grata yeah so it must be amazing to them to have literally lived through going from that to now when they're fettered and they're brought out here and they're everyone hangs on their every word about yeah their father and and how he built this you know it's incredible i, I go to the opera house a lot and it never doesn't take my breath away wow, it's incredible it's always you walk up there and you never lose that sense of wonder at yeah what it is and, and he brought that to us you know exactly like and brought it to life something that should never have happened something that you know you, ca- you kind of had to fight <laughs> tooth and nail to kind of bring that thing to life yeah it's a bit like the publication the, <laughs> week, the weekly publication you like you got to give it your all you do that's right but it's something that is there is a kind of a similar kind of analogy to that a smaller scale but it is something that is in our lives every day and every weekend and that, how you tell those stories and express those stories is memorable. People will probably come to you and say, I saw that article back in 2018. Mm. You know, it, it had a major impact on me. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like there's this, there's, yeah. this, you're, I guess you're probably thinking, I'm just putting the publication together, getting it done, you know, obviously with good intention and with insight and, and all that, um, but I guess you can never imagine how impactful, you know, those stories 
are in people's lives. That's right. And I still remember from my growing up, I can clearly remember stories from Good Weekend that, that I remember yep. really moved me. Or And yes, I do get that quite often from people about a story that, you know, it is a reminder that they move people. Let's talk about you again. You talked about before about your swimming and with your mates and, uh, you know, feet up on the couch on a Friday with the dogs and your husband. Um, have you designed your life? I'd like to say I have, but I feel like it's been more sporadic, more haphazard. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a hard... Well, it's not meant to be that hard. And of all people, you should be able to say yes or no. Don't feel embarrassed if you say no, because a lot lot of people don't agree with it. (laughs) I would say half yes, half no. Okay. You know, like I feel like a lot of it happens to you. You know, like I didn't, yes, I chose to leave law, but a lot of where I went in journalism was because opportunities. I guess you design it in the sense that an opportunity comes up and you go for it. Yeah. Um, so in that respect, I guess I have in a way because you think you haven't. It's a good question. It's a really good question. You think you haven't, but then you think, well, the opportunities that you went for and took and then moved forward. Like I could have stayed at AFR, but I chose to go for a weekend. I could have stayed in Melbourne, but I chose to come to Sydney. I could have stayed in law, but I chose to throw it all up. So I guess, yeah, I guess I have, huh? (laughs) Didn't know that. Well, that was a roundabout answer. I think well, you're more decisive. I had to think about it for a minute. Yeah, I think you're pretty more decisive on the publication, are you? Well, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask my team. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, look, it's been such a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Katrina. Oh, thanks, Vince. I love listening to your podcast. So I'm, I'm honoured to be here. Oh, thank you. That makes me feel good. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Design Your Life with a good weekend editor, Katrina Strickland. Tune to the next episode recorded live in London with one of the most influential men in the London architecture and built environment community, Peter Murray, OBE. Founder of New London Architecture, or NLA as it's commonly known, as well as the globally acclaimed property marketing agency, WordSearch, and the legendary Blueprint magazine, which had a massive influence on me personally as a young designer starting out in the 80s. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.